Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of Baha'i Blogcast. I am sitting in my office in Agora Hills, California, with a delightful, wonderful, devoted, brilliant, committed, service-oriented, hysterical, beautiful couple from the Gambia uh, in Africa. We have Mam Yasin Nsar and her husband, David Fox. And Mam Yasin also goes by Yasin. Yasin, right? Just That's for right. short. Is Yasin. that right? Yes. Okay. They are the founders of Starfish International, an educational initiative in the Gambia. They're also members of the Baha'i Faith. And uh, if you couldn't tell by my introduction, they're extraordinary human beings. I wish you could see them here in my office. They're so cute and brilliant and uh, fantastic. Welcome, you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Rain. Was that the best introduction you've ever gotten? That is the best <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. I have so many questions for you guys. I'm so happy to get you on this podcast. I'm really excited for the Baha'i community, friends of the Baha'i community, podcast fans, Rain Wilson fans, whomever, to learn about you guys, hear your story, and learn about Starfish. So let's start at the very beginning. Yasin, you told an incredible story last night of growing up in the Gambia. You started the Starfish program on the same block that you grew up. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your background uh, growing up in, in the Gambia. So I come from the smallest country in Africa. It's called the Gambia. It's in West Africa. And from... by the way, can I just say, I love countries and places that have the word the in them, like the Bronx <laughs> and the Gambia, are two of my favorites. Go ahead. Well, the Gambia is very small, so we need a the in front of it. And um, so that's where I grew up, in a village called Lamin, which is 20 minutes from the city, capital city, and about seven minutes from the airport. So that's where we're situated. My parents were born in that village. My grandparents on my mom's side came from Senegal, which surrounds the Gambia on all three sides. And my dad's family is from the Gambia. And so my, da- my mom and dad, growing up in this village, my dad comes from a huge family and my mom is only one child. She, her parents had seven kids. Um, only she survived among the seven kids. So as a girl, as a young girl in the Gambia, she did not have to compete for resources to be able to go to school. So she was the first girl in her village to go to high school, and she had to go live in the city to go to high school. And she just assumed that after high school, she would go to college. And then her parents said, no, you're a female child. You should stay home and get married. You finished high school. That's wonderful. Stay home and get married. So she got married with that feeling of, I wish I had gone to college. Since I didn't get a chance to, my, all of my children will go to college. So I grew up with my mom just saying, you're going to go to college. You're going to go and to college. Isn't that one of the miracles of education, that if you give someone a taste of education, they want it even more, and they especially want it for their children. So it, it starts a whole ripple effect. Yeah. And, and in my case, it rippled all the way to uh, how I work with women and girls now. But my parents, my, both my mom and dad, were pretty um, encouraging of education and supported it. And where my mom was insisted that we would all go to school and go all the way to college and go as far as we wanted to. My dad was also concerned about how that was going to happen. So he was very open about having discussions with me, having arguments and debates while he was trying to eat his meals. He would pick a topic and say, you speak for the motion, I'll speak against the motion. So I grew up. Is that, is that common in the culture of the Gambia or is this distinct <laughs> to your family? No, it's not common. Um, my dad was just different. And I think it part, he says part of it was because he had a chance to travel outside the country and the culture and saw different ways of raising girls and wanted to do that. And so I grew up with that idea and that encouragement within the family. But I also grew up around a lot of girls who were 
dropping out of school, the higher we went. And I recognized that the basic difference between me and these girls was that my mom had an education and their mothers didn't. And so I thought, I'm not smarter than these girls. I can see the difference between us. And that difference is that I have an educated mother in the home. And so that gave me more chances, more choices, more opportunities. Um, and so I thought when I grow up, I want to do something so that more girls can go through school and don't have to drop out. Um, and so that's the context within which I was growing up. And when I was about eight, my parents went through a separation, which ended up in a divorce, but they got back together when I was 13. Wow. But during that separation, I watched my mom go from leaving the home and starting on her own, getting her own apartment, regaining custody of us kids, um, and furthering uh, her work life. And it was just a good manifestation for me of how many choices a woman can have if she's able to also economically provide for herself. And I also knew that she was able to do that so effectively because she had an education. So in as much as at the beginning of my life, it was an idea. Um, in the By the time I was a teenager, my mom had actually lived it. And so I saw how it worked out practically. And then I was convinced. I was just like, this is what I want to do. Provide as many opportunities for African women and girls as I can when I grow up. Because I could see that the women and girls were strong enough. They did not need to be empowered. What they needed were choices. And to provide those choices, it was economics and education. And you could get to the economics through education. And that was the beginning for me. Um, so all the activism, all the studying, all the work that I did was to prepare to, to provide more opportunities and choices for girls, particularly those at the bottom rung of the social ladder. That's beautiful. And your father wanted to be polygamous. That's why the divorce the happened. But that's a pretty common thing in the Gambia, which is a 95% Muslim country. Is that correct? Yeah, polygamy is not unusual um, in the Gambia. It's, it's now becoming less common, I hope. Um, but uh, it wasn't unusual. And my dad came from a polygamous family. But my mom didn't come from a polygamous family. So even though we were growing up in that type of culture, my mom didn't know that as a firsthand experience. And she didn't want that for herself and for her children. And so that was a big part of the breakup. Um, some other reasons, um, you know, my culture, there are parts of it, there are different ethnic groups that practice female genital mutilation, for example, and my mom's ethnic group did not practice that. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted nothing to do with that. Um, and I always like to contextualize. I don't like talking about Africa and talking about harmful traditional practices only without juxtaposing it with harmful practices around the world. For example, in the US, you have anorexia, bulimia, um, breast implants, nose jobs, all of these things that are a mutilation of a woman's body. And then in other cultures, you have bride burning, you have foot binding. So it is within that context that the justifications for what we do to women's bodies or what we tell them to do to, to their bodies um, happen all around the world. In my context, it happened to be female genital mutilation. And I bring it up just to say that because my mom had an education because my mom had choices. She was able to stand up for me and say, this is not going to happen to my daughter, no matter what it costs, and I will stand by her. So that's such a powerful story of this role model in your life who, because of her, her character, but also because of her education, stood up against polygamy and stood up against, so that's not gonna fly, mm -hmm. and stood up against female genital mutilation, so that's not gonna work for me and for my daughter. Yes. Um, and started her own business, yes. uh, prized education. So she was, she was a real uh, hero for you in your life. She was, my life revolved and 
in a lot of ways still revolve around around my mom. She's retired since, and she is the supervisor at the nonprofit we started, Starfish International. And she volunteers there. She does this voluntarily. But when we started our organization, we started with a library, and we didn't have money to pay a librarian. So my mom would go to work and close from work at 4, and then come and open the library and sit there until about 7 o'clock before she would actually go home. Oh, that's great. So, um, I believe in girls' education, but she really modeled it and then decided to stand by me and help guide the program and guide me. And she's still there with 100 girls coming through her compound every day. Oh, <laughs> so that's great. She's, she's a big force. We call her our chief executive that's angel. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, David, moving on to you. Top that story. Oh, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> now, David is, before the, the podcast was like, I can't do this. I'm not. I'm the quiet one. I don't That's speak. Right. She does the talking. <laughs> I'm nervous. Um, but we uh, would love to hear your story too. Yes. Part of what I like to do on Baha'i Blogcast is feature couples mm-hmm. and how they work together and how their marriage shines throughout um, as a you know as a fortress you know um, of well being. Um, through their service and their work and their faith and their family life. And so that's why I really wanted to hear from you um, as well. So tell us a, a little bit about, about your background. My goodness. Um, raised in Syracuse, New York. Um, I, uh, I was really interested in psychology growing up. Um, I watched a lot of uh, international conflicts around the world. And for me, I didn't see... The people suffering in those conflicts as those people or those other people i felt like it was my people it was me that was going through these 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 difficulties um so i had a personal mission um that kind of ran secondary to um getting my, my my college education but i wanted to travel around to the different places in the world that had the worst conflict um, so i can understand the motivation for one human being harming another individual um, so you did not grow up Baha'i. This is just in your own sphere. What was your family's uh, religious background? Well, actually, uh, we were very poor. So we ended up going to whatever church uh, was closest, um, which happened to usually be Catholic churches. Um, and I thought you were going to say we went to whatever church had the best spread after, <laughs> after the ceremonies. <laughs> you know, sometimes some churches have lasagnas and some only have trays of cookies. So I did that factor into your family's choice at all? No, no, it was whatever's closest because we had to walk. <laughs> so I threw you off a little bit there, but go back to what you were talking about. You were talking about you were really fascinated by what makes humans have conflict and what brings disunity well, again, I wanted to go to the different places in the world that had the worst conflict so I can talk to, you know, both sides of the conflict and, and understand what was at the heart of these atrocious behaviors I used to see on TV. And for me, you know, like I said, you know, actually Rwanda happened when I was in 12th grade and um, I, I I couldn't even function anymore because I felt like, you know, distance is almost, you know, it's so insignificant. If it was happening, you know, in my house or in my neighborhood or 10 miles down the street or, I mean, distance, what is distance? Um, And if these things, these atrocities were happening, um, on average, it was 10,000 people a day who were dying. Um, You know, I I, I couldn't function anymore. So um, so that was kind of what started my, my need, my investigation for you know, how one human being could harm another individual. So, And that I, took you to Africa? It took me to South Africa. Um, I went, I was a sophomore in college, and I just applied. I went, I didn't know a single African at the time. And uh, so I was in South Africa, and I got involved in the, um, in the movement. Um, I quickly met uh, the president of the student wing of the ANC, and we were organizing marches and protests. Was this Nelson Mandela still in prison at this time? Or? He was just released mm-hmm. um, a few years uh, before. So it was still, if, if you were involved in politics, it was very violent. It was very dangerous. Um, but uh, so that's that's that was my first stop. But I had actually become a Baha'i two months before I went on the trip. And I didn't understand the non-political involvement <laughs> that the Baha'i faith has. And uh, so it was wonderful because uh, I realized as a Baha'i, I don't necessarily have to 
risk my life stopping exploitation in the world. I can actually pump positivity in the world, you know, through the Baha'i teachings. And uh, how did you hear about the Baha'i faith? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so uh, in middle school, um, I had a buddy that I used to talk to. I used to talk to him about my ideas about the world and how the world could truly come together and how like a functional utopia was actually possible. Um, I didn't know how to bring it about, but I could see it so clearly. And I talk about it all the time. I was almost obsessive about it. And later on in life, he actually ended up moving away. And uh, we, we grew up in New York. He moved down to Kentucky and he became a Baha'i and it transformed his life. And as soon as he became a Baha'i, every night he'd start having very clear, vivid dreams of us two walking through our old neighborhood, talking about the principles of the faith. And so he had to come up to New York to tell me about it. And he came to my house. He looked completely transformed. His eyes were so soft. And he was so loving. And, uh, and he had a really rough upbringing, so that wasn't the, you know, the, the, the friend that I remembered. And uh, he was completely transformed. So he gave me a, a Gloria Fazi intro book. And I'm reading the book. The first part was talking about the history of the faith. And it sounded like, you know, typical religious history where, you know, you have someone who brings a new message and people revolt against it. And, and, and there's a lot of bloodshed and, and then, the, you know, the faith usually, you know, triumphs. Um, I was like, okay, this sounds like religious history. And then and the, the second part was like spiritual poetry that 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 was perfectly in sync with um, my ideas about a functional utopia, the, the you know, the possibility of having, you know, the world coming together and really, you know, functioning and living uh, and, and prospering together. But um, the third section of the book was the administrative order. And I was so excited because I felt like I always had the blueprints to 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 you know, a functional utopia, world peace, but I didn't know how to bring it about. It's like having the blueprints for a house and not knowing how to use a saw or a hammer. And I had no idea how to bring this about, but I could see it. But I read you know, you know, how the administrative order works, and I said, my goodness, these are the perfect instructions to bring about what I saw in those blueprints. So I read the book. It took me you know, about nine hours. The next morning, I called them up. I said, I'm a Baha'i. <laughs> So nine hours after getting the Gloria Fazy book. Nine hours. <laughs> That's a record. Sure. So I'm just intrigued. How did you guys meet? Your 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 stories kind of dovetailed in Kentucky of all places. <laughs> a, a boy from Syracuse who has traveled to Africa and and a woman from the Gambia meeting um, in Kentucky. How did that happen? Well, like I said, do you want to hear the correct story or the incorrect story? The right story <laughs> no, for no, no, me. No. The right story for me. <laughs> Go ahead. Anne. So I'll tell you the story. So um, I was going to school. I came from the Gambia to one of four schools in the U.S. that has a free tuition for undergrads for students that are high achieving but come from families that would normally not be able to afford a college what, education. What college is that? It's called Berea College, D-E-R-E-A, Berea College in Eastern Kentucky. So you go there and all the students work on campus to pay back their tuition, so to give back. But you go through and you get a free college education and it's based on an honor system that you would go back to your community and make a difference. And so all Berea graduates, it was started as an abolitionist school wow. in the 1800s. Wow. And it was one of the first schools in the South to actually have blacks and whites going to the same school and males and females going to the same school. My goodness. So this is where um, a high school teacher of mine came to Ohio to a Baha'i meeting and heard about Berea College and brought back an application and said, you should apply to this college. And I said, no, I don't think so. Only 10% of the student body comes from international students and there are a lot of people applying and he said just apply and I applied and got in so I went to Eastern Kentucky to go to school and I went to study sociology and French because I wanted to understand my society better and I wanted to start a program that would work in French Africa as well as English speaking Africa. Um, so while I was there, while I was in the Gambia, I had heard about the Baha'i faith from a family friend and I was learning about it, um, which is not unusual if you grow up in the Gambia. It's one of the most beautiful things about the Gambia is this connectedness between the religions. So I come from a Muslim family. I went to a Baptist kindergarten, a Methodist elementary school and a Catholic high school. 
Mm. And this was, this is not unusual for a gambling child growing up. But as I was growing up, I would go to Quranic school and then I would go to Baptist church or Methodist church or Catholic church based on what school I was going to. And I'd come home really excited and say to my mom, you know, they're teaching the same things. The Quranic teacher told me the same things that the priest talked about today at church. And people kept saying to me, yes, they're similar, but they're differences. And then when I met the Baha'is, I said, you know, all these religions have us the same spiritual basis and believe essentially in the same truths. And the Baha'is said, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. We all belong to one human family and we all belong to a single religion of God um, just revealed over time. And I thought, these people are very weird. <laughs> I should either get away from them or find out more about them. So by the time I came to college, I was learning about the Baha'i faith, finding out more about it. And it was spring break, and there was a Baha'i youth retreat that I went to. And when I got there, I this was that? in Kentucky okay. and when I got to college. And so I went to, for spring break, I went to this Baha'i youth retreat. And there were about 20 youth there including David, but I met his best friend from middle school, Jeff, and his <laughs> wife, Jill, and I just fell in love with them. And so I said to them at the end of the retreat, give me your number so we can get in touch or keep in touch. And instead of Jeff giving me their number, he gave me David's number. Oh. <laughs> so I went back within that time. So this guy, Jeff, is responsible for you being a Baha'i and responsible for you guys being married. Yeah. So he's the he's the founder of Starfish, really. He's he's played a very critical role in everything significant in my life, and we're 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 very close. We're like spiritual, you know, brothers. We're we're very close. And it's it's interesting because in a in a country where I encountered so much racism, Jeff and Jill. Jill is from Nebraska. Jeff is from New York. Um, both Caucasians um, named their first child after me. So there's wow. a six-foot blonde, blue-eyed um, Yasin somewhere in North Carolina <laughs> who's fantastic. called Yasin, so Jonah Yasin Dalton. So, so it, it was just interesting. Um, David had also gone to Baha'i Summer School and mm -hmm. met this woman that I used to go in the morning and say prayers with. Her name was Mary Gabriel. And David had bumped into her and she almost fell. So she was giving David a lecture and they got into a conversation. So when I called Jeff's number, David answered the phone and I said, no, I'm trying to reach Jeff. And David said, oh, Jeff must have given you my number instead of his number because he spent the whole retreat telling me that you were my wife and we should get together. <laughs> so, so David and I ended up talking all night. And then the next morning I went to... Mary's house to say prayers. And I walked in and Mary said, I think I've met your husband. And I said, please don't tell me his name is David Fox. And she went, how did you know? And I was oh like, oh goodness. no. So I said, well, I spent all of last night talking to him because I was trying to call Jeff and Jill. So we just talked on the phone for two weeks. Two weeks later, he proposed. And I said, yes. Two I, weeks later. I knew without a doubt that was my soulmate. Yeah. Without after two weeks of talking on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So that's how we met. But next step is you had to learn about life in the Gambia. Are you willing to go to the Gambia? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, this was, let's see. So we, uh, so I, I proposed to her and, and, and she said yes. And I was thrilled. And she says, now you have to go to my culture to see if you could live there. And I said, absolutely, I was ready. So um, I went to the Gambia and fell in love with the culture, with her family, and uh, and it was it was wonderful. <laughs> well, when he was going, I was still doing my undergrads, and so I couldn't afford a ticket back home. But I came to the U.S. knowing that I wasn't going to stay in the U.S. The U.S. did not need me as much as my country needed me and I wanted to go home and I just knew this. And so I knew that whoever I met, wherever I met them in the world, they had to be willing and able to live in the Gambia. And so, um, and then before I left to come to college, I didn't know when I would be able to afford a ticket back home. And so I didn't know when I would see my parents and my family again. So one of the questions I asked my dad when I was leaving was, Dad, if your soul was taken and put in a teenage female body like mine, given everything that you know, what kind of husband would you look for? 
And he said, I would look for somebody that was kind to a fault. They were so kind, people would say, no, no, this is too much. And I would look for somebody who would put your dreams before their own dreams. They would love you that much. And I would look for somebody who could never be polygamous. And so when I met David, I said, you have Did to go back. Did he also say I would look for someone with a mustache? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I ended up with somebody with a mustache. <laughs> so, so, we, um, so when I met David, I said, well, you have to go to the Gambia and see if you can live there because that's where my life's work is. But I also, when he was leaving, gave him about four letters oh, to take goodness. home. And these were to my parents. So I described to my dad what I thought I knew of David. I described to my mom the same thing and my two brothers. My baby sister was a baby then. And I said, please, he's in a different environment, in a different culture. He can't pretend his way there for two weeks. He's out of his element. Please observe him closely for me. You know me very well. You would know a life partner for me. So and you, tell want, me. you wanted your family to spy on him? Basically, spy on him, investigate thoroughly without him knowing it, of course, or suspecting, and write to me when he's coming back and tell me whether you think he's a good fit for me or not. And they all loved him. And, um, and that so, was it. yeah, that was it. <laughs> and David, you were, you were willing to move, essentially go pioneering, to move from the States to go uh, work and live in the Gambia, and um, that would eventually become Starfish. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, the Baha'is believe that the world is one country and, and mankind are arid citizens. And, and I've always felt that, you know, I've, I've never felt a separation between me and other people. So it was very natural. It was natural. You know, I went to South Africa and, and uh, I connected with everyone and, and, uh, and the culture was amazing. And, 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 and the Gambia is like, it's like heaven on earth. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the few places on the planet where, um, you have different groups that, you know, normally conflict in different parts of the world. But in the Gambia, you know, you have Muslims getting along with Christians, Christians getting along with Muslims and then different tribes getting along and they see each other, you know, all as one family. And uh, and it's just it's fantastic. The whole world has a lot to learn from 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 the communal society in the Gambia. And it's fascinating to me uh, during breakfast this morning, you said that because I was asking about the Gambia, that there that the language is English, which is strange considering it's in really French-speaking West Africa um, and Muslim West Africa, and that English is, is the language, but you said that the whole country, this very unified country, unity and diversity, but the country itself was founded for slavery. It was an English colony. It's, it's, what's, it surrounds a river. What's the river? The river Gambia goes through it. Okay. It divides the country. So it's a, that's a couple hundred miles on each side of the river Gambia. Yeah. And then all the way up to the headwaters of, of the river. And so that was a big river in the slave trade. But how interesting that this, you know, this, uh, this country that was founded on one of the, the, the most grotesque acts in human history mm-hmm. would now be have have an, a nice unity and diversity about it yeah 200 miles the the british need needed 280 miles of land from the river to the ocean to transport slaves out and so we're nestled within senegal except for the atlantic ocean um, and it it's really a, a a manifestation of what slavery um, and colonization really did in africa so if you look at the gambia and senegal where the same people speak the same local languages, the same ethnic groups, the same culture, except when the Senegalese go to school, they learn French. And when we go to school, we learn English. Otherwise, everything else is exactly the same. So you can look at how they just carved out a place and called it a British colony, different from these other people, because um, the British needed part of the pie and the French needed another and it's part. Just a, it's just a different demarcation on the map. That's it. Yeah. Is there is there close ties between the Gambia and uh, the UK? Uh, yes. So there have always been close ties since colonization. We got our independence in 1965. Um, but then Gambians have gone to England to go to school, um, not free or on scholarship usually, had to pay for themselves. But th- there are close ties. The Gambia is the smallest country in Africa, so we're not really primed for war 
we also don't have some of the things that, that make conflict so rife in Africa. We don't have diamonds, don't have gold, we don't have those things. We have tourism and we have farming and we have our biggest is the human resources, the people. And so people don't tend to fight us. We're pretty friendly as a people. So we have close ties with a lot of people around the world, luckily. And um, I would love to know, what's the Baha'i community like there? What's it like to try and teach the faith that is in a place that's so not only tribal, but tribal and Muslim at the same time? Um, I imagine the independent investigation of truth is something that's pretty difficult for young people in the Gambia to pursue, although you managed to, to do it quite well. Um, but how many Baha'is are there and, and what's it like? Um, there are about 400, I would say 400 Baha'is in the country at the moment. Uh, we have a national spiritual assembly and we have local spiritual assemblies. So they're allowed to gather as Baha'is and be an official organization? Yes. So, you know what I said about, about religion in the Gambia, it's one of my favorite things is that we grow up understanding religion in its context in that we can still be of different religions and be one people. And so that has its, one of the things is that it's not unusual to have a huge discussion about religion or about politics in the Gambia and people can have their different views and then go have lunch or be with each other. And so, like for example, I come from a Muslim family, but my godmother's Catholic. So I grew up going to church with her when she was going to church because she was my godmother um, that came first. And whether she was Catholic or um, whether my family was Muslim, that was just an addition to the relationship, not something that pulled them apart. And their families, families intermarry in the Gambia. So you can have a father who is Muslim, a mother who's Christian, and then the kids get to decide what side they want to be. So you can have some of the sisters and brothers as Christians and some of the sisters and brothers as Muslims. So that is wonderful. I think what my hardest time in the U.S. was actually, I came to the U.S. to go to school in August and I terribly missed home in December because of Christmas, because I woke up in the U.S. for Christmas and people exchanged presents and Christmas was over. And I started crying and people on campus said, why are you crying? I said, where's Christmas? In the Gambia, we celebrate Christmas for two to three weeks. We have floats in the street. We have masquerades, even though it's 90% Muslim. And I said, we, you know, we go to the Christians' homes. We go to church for the music. It's beautiful local traditional music in the church. And, you know, the choirs are beautiful. And I said, here, nothing's happening. It's Christmas. And they said, but we thought you said you come from a Muslim family. And I said, what does that have to do with celebrating Christmas? We mm -hmm. all celebrate Christmas. So it's that kind of environment. But because of that, people are very happy where they are spiritually. Mm -hmm. And so they can learn about all kinds of different faiths, but they don't necessarily have to join that faith. I can come to church with you and I don't have to be a Christian. You can come um, celebrate my Muslim holidays, but you don't have to be Muslim. And so that that is... That makes being a Baha'i also very interesting because, you know, Baha'is have to raise their children to investigate different faiths and, and choose where their spiritual home is. And so you can see in the Gambia people growing up and feeling free to investigate, but usually they stay within their religion for the most part because they're so comfortable where they are. Hmm. So, so it's difficult to find somebody who then becomes a Baha'i because they are perfectly happy um, being a Muslim. And for me, for my personal story, it was that it brought together my being from a Muslim family into a more powerful um, realization of who I was as a spiritual being. Because I, it just, I grew up understanding that Christians were my family, everybody was my family, and to have a faith and to have this confirmation um, that in this day and age, this is what God wants for me. And I don't have to look at somebody and think, oh, they're not on the right spiritual path because they're not me to have a faith that said we are all one. We're, this, uh, there's only one religion of God and we're mm -hmm. all members of that family. I tell my parents it made me appreciate Islam even more ah. as a Baha'i. So, wow, wonderful. Yeah. David, what's been your experience being a Baha'i in the Gambia and teaching the faith in the Gambia? 
Uh, it's very similar. Um, uh, I serve on a, a, a committee, an area teaching committee, and uh, so we are constantly organizing, you know, I, actually, I think it should be called the Area Learning Committee, actually, <laughs> because you're constantly trying, um, you know, new ways to, to, to build community and, and you're always learning from the people that you're working with. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, many people, gamings are so friendly, extremely hospitable. There's no word for a stranger in, in any of the languages in the Gambia. Um, and everyone receives you and, 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 and they'll love on you and they'll take care of you. Um, but again, when it comes time for, um, you know, some of the activities, you know, sometimes people don't show because, you know, again, they're very comfortable where they are and they don't necessarily feel a need to, you know, necessarily learn something new. Um, I or think stand what, up or, yeah. or be different from where they grew up. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, you know, they're very comfortable. Um, and it's interesting because... In the Gambia, it's a communal society, and everyone has this, uh, you know, this this real love for each other, um, and this feeling of oneness, and that's you know one of the major points of the Baha'i faith. In many places in the world, it doesn't have that, so it's you know the Baha'i faith is a really strong, you know, the really people are really uh, attracted to it. Um, and in the Gambia, people are like, "Hey, we got this. You know, this is this is what we do. This, mm. is, this, this is what we're experts at. You know, we're, you know, it's one world. One, you know, you know one visits. country. We always visit each other. That's right. <laughs> what are you talking so, about? So yeah, the world and the Baha'i world have a lot to learn from uh, the Gambia. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that's wonderful. Now, um, before we get into starfish, which I'd love to hear uh, about, um, Yasin, you talked about going to Kentucky from Africa and experiencing. Racism. Tell me about that. I'm I'm fascinated by, uh, you know, an African young woman moving to Kentucky and having those experience of the of this racism exists all over the world, but America has its own very distinct and virulent uh, kind of racism. What was that like? So Kentucky, going to Kentucky taught me a lot. I grew up in the Gambia, and there's a it's the biggest industry is tourism. So I grew up seeing Caucasians in, in tourist trucks throwing candy and pencils and pens at the people, but they were still removed from us. It was like, oh, those people on trucks throwing stuff. We never interacted closely enough for me to truly know what they believed or what they thought of me. And I grew up as the majority. So I remember when Obama was uh, became president and I was excited, everybody was excited. But for me, the president had always looked like me. The lawyers had all always looked like me. The doctors, the police officers, everybody looked like me. So it wasn't, the, the state house was always occupied by somebody that looked like me. Um, and so it wasn't, my reaction to it was a little different. And so I went to Kentucky as the majority, feeling I never walked into a room and thought, I'm the only black person here. Because in my mind, the white people, Caucasians were the minority. I wasn't. And so my experience was different from most African-Americans like David. It was, it was different for me. And then I grew up in a communal society with very strict so, um, social laws, where I call them very advanced social laws. For example, you don't talk to a Gambian without first greeting them and acknowledging their humanity. And so when I would be in a room and somebody walked in and didn't say hello, I didn't expect them to talk to me for the rest of the time. I would, and then they would say, oh, is the professor coming to class today? And my first reaction was, you didn't greet me. You never said hello. Why, how come I exist to you now that you need something? And so that coming from a black person, I think was very strange. I had never, I remember the first time somebody tried to give me change and they didn't want to touch my hand. They kind of dropped the change in my hand. I didn't, nothing like that had ever happened to me. And so I simply moved my hand away and it, the coins just scattered everywhere. And I said something like, now that you have to pick it up, the next time you put it on my hand, you'll make sure to touch my hand or we'll be here all day doing this. And they were working, I was just a customer and they didn't want to do that. So they put the money in my hand. And I also volunteered. I came into the community thinking, surely I, ha I have to do something to give back. So I was a, um, a peer health educator volunteer. So I was going to Planned Parenthood and other places talking about contraceptive and uh, maternal health. 
And so I would walk in, I'm a Gambian with a British accent, somewhat of a British Gambian accent, um, walking into a Kentucky classroom to talk about women's health. And that was strange and that was different. And I was also in the community. So, but I also knew different things. Like when we went to the crosswalk, I couldn't stand close enough. I had to stand far away enough for when a truck was passing and somebody spit tobacco at me, it wouldn't touch me. I had to always calculate how far can I stand so somebody's tobacco spit or the screaming something derogatory wouldn't touch me. That's heartbreaking. It is, but it, it taught me, what it, it taught me about humanity was that my first Thanksgiving there, I didn't have any family in the US, I didn't know anybody. And somebody, one of the students who was from deep in Kentucky, took me home and her family completely took care of me. Mm -hmm. So it, it immediately broke any stereotype I could ever have of people. Mm -hmm. I knew that I couldn't call these people Kentuckians and these people New Yorkers and assume that they would be a certain way. So I, had, I got spit at in Kentucky and I got completely adopted and taken care of in Kentucky. And I was like, it's the same Kentucky, it's the same people, they're just different versions of it. But at the same time, in the US, racism is so painful for me because for example, we, we were raising our kids both here and in the Gambia. And last year when we came, because of all the shootings of black people, our children, every time David would leave, would say, Daddy, if the police stop you, please don't do anything. We want you to come back home. Or if we go to the playground and everybody's on the swings and we approach the swings and everybody takes their kids and leave, our kids will turn to us and say, what's wrong, you know? And so those are the things that I rage at when people deny that it's happening because it's, like, it's a reality in our lives. We, and so... Anyway, how, how heartbreaking that some children in the Gambia are worried for their parents coming to the United States. Yeah. Uh, worried at institutionalized racist police brutality. Yeah. Children in the Gambia. Yeah. Un unbelievable. But you're striving for a, a spiritual and educational, incredible event, opportunity, uh, solution to some of these problems with starfish. How did that come about? You had talked in your story earlier, Yasin, about being devoted towards not only empowering, but providing opportunities to uh, young African women and girls in education. And you went back to the actual street, the actual block that you grew up on to do this. Yes, so I had said earlier that um, I did not grow up around women that needed to be empowered. I grew up around the strongest women I know in the world who just needed choices and opportunities. So I knew this going in. And I knew that um, several things. One, that the people knew the answers to the problems. And so even though I grew up as a Gambian girl in the Gambia, as a college graduate, I needed to go back and talk to girls that were in the system to ask them what they would want in an educational program that would provide opportunities and choices for them. So the first thing that we did was a needs assessment. We talked to girls in kindergarten, girls in elementary school, girls in middle school, and girls in high school, and female teachers that had just graduated and were back in the system to ask, uh, what do you think the problems are? What opportunities do you need? And how would you design a program to fulfill those needs? And so that's the structure of Starfish. And so we have reflections every month where we talk to the girls and say, what's working for you? What's not working for you? And tweak the program to fit that. That's the only way they can own it. So I went back to listen to, to my people and to find out what they needed and to use whatever skills and opportunities I had to give them what they want and need. So that was important. And the second one was I did not want to be the voice for them. I had watched development happen because I grew up in a village a lot where a charismatic leader would get up and the whole program would be centered around them. Then they would start having awards or get hired by the UN and all of a sudden all the wells that they had dug and all the boreholes would dry up because the charismatic leader was removed. And so I wanted these girls to own the program and to run the program and to do it without expecting um, that people would come and save them. And so they would do it on their own. And anybody who came to accompany them would find them working. So we started under the trees. We had our classes. Um, there were 100 girls in a circle, and I was seven months pregnant with my 
a three-year-old on my back giving classes using what I already knew to teach them what they were asking for. So that's how the program started. Nine years into it, when you come to Starfish, I'm the last person you will see. David is the last person you'll see because the girls run the whole program. They will tell you what they're doing. They'll tell you what their five-year plan is. They'll tell you what their annual plan is, what their monthly and daily plans are, and who's in charge of it. And so that, for me, is really important because the, the idea is voice. They know the solutions. Now they need the voice to be able to implement those solutions. And where resources meet them is also very important to me. That just because somebody's bringing scholarships to them doesn't mean that that person gets to tell them how to run their lives. And so that balance between providing resources and being able to accompany somebody in their um, job to, to help themselves and uplift themselves. That's, that's very powerful. And David, you came into this being a stranger to the country and the culture. And you, you were telling a story earlier about meeting a girl, spending time with the girls. When you have volunteers come, you said you, you have them make sure that they spend a day in the girls' shoes, you know, f- following the girls, seeing how they live, what they live like. And that was a powerful experience for you? Extremely powerful. Um, the first, our first year we had volunteers was 2009. In 2010, we couldn't afford to go as a family. So Yasin looks at me and says, David... You have to go by yourself, <laughs> and you have to run the whole program for the whole summer. I just gave birth, so I think I had done enough for that time. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of the hardest things I could possibly do is to leave my, 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 my family, but we went. Um, Starfish is all about uh, service to humanity, so the way the girls give back, um, they don't pay for the program, but how they give back is through um, identifying uh, needs within the community and, um, and, and providing solutions for those needs and, and doing service projects. So it was a summer of service. Um, so I was just a facilitator and they went ahead and, and uh, designed amazing service projects um, the whole summer long. So during that summer, Yasin said to me, she's like, David, you, you, you feel like you know the girls, you know, you worked with them for a whole summer, but now you have to do home visits. You have to go into the home and see um, how they really live. And I said, okay, no problem, I can do this. So I went to the first home and it just it really had a tremendous impact on me. I mean, the poverty was was was, was really bad. It was uh, it was difficult. There was uh, uh, very little material in the home. You know, it was a situation where you know you know the family would would even run out of food toward the end of the month, and uh, and it was it was hard for me to to, to see that, especially you know for, you know some of these students that, that were in the family that I had you know close relationships with. And uh, just to see how they struggled was very difficult. Um, but we talked about the program, and I asked the mom, you know, how, how is the program impacting your, your, your child? And uh, she immediately just starts crying, um, and with gratitude, and she's like, I need to thank you so much. And she tells me her story of struggle, and, uh, and how her daughter, her eldest daughter, has been completely transformed um, just after five weeks of being in our first program. And uh, she said now before she, you know, she rarely smiled. She rarely talked to anyone. And now she's singing and always beaming. And, and even her life goal, you know, she, her mother told me that when she would ask her, what do you want to be when you get older? She would say, mommy, I'm not going to be anyone because, you know, I'm a nobody. And she said after our summer program, she came home and said, she's like, I want to be a doctor. And uh, so she, uh, she went ahead and took the hardest courses possible. And she scored almost a perfect score on her um, standardized exam after, after, after high school. And uh, she got a full scholarship to go to medical school, and she'll be finishing up uh, next year. So that entire family has been transformed. The mother uh, runs our, uh, our, our business center, our skill center. And uh, uh, Ellen, the oldest, is uh, going to be graduating from medical school next year. And the, the middle child, Madeline, uh, Madeline was too young to join the program, but when she saw the impact on her sister, she says, I have to be a part of this. So Madeline was able to come to America for, she got a scholarship for uh, all four years of high school. To go to Berea College where I went to school. Yes, and then she got a, in a full scholarship to go to, to, go to college, and, and she wants to do uh, international relations, and she's studying Asian languages. And then their third daughter, um, uh, Anzel, she was just a baby at the time, uh, but now she's about nine years old, 
and she's a little spitfire. She's she's she's, she's amazing. I, I can't imagine what she's going to end up doing. But the whole entire family is transformed, and it's 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 really special. So I want to say two things about David's story with Ellen. The first one is that um, that when David did that home visit, he came. He called me. I was in the U.S. And he said, this is crazy. We're spending $100 towards Ilan's school fees. And that $100, if I took it, I could buy some basic things that they need. I could buy some chairs. I could buy some dishes for them. I could buy a mattress for them to sleep on. And they can certainly have some food. So that's what we should spend it on instead. And I said, no, you can't do that. And he said, what do you mean? He was so angry. He was like, what do you mean you can't do that? And I said, if you provide all of that for Ilan, in a few years, all of those things would break. And Ilan and her family would be in the same position. If you give her an education, not only would she be able to provide even better stuff for herself, but she'll be able to be a resource in the community and help a lot of people. And so when you think about the Gambia and you think about healthcare issues in the Gambia, to think that this child who really truly now understands selfless service and how it has impacted her life will become a, a doctor next year that means any of the 100 girls, anybody in the village, anybody in the country that really needed her services that walks into her office will be helped, insurance or no insurance, it doesn't matter. And this has happened in the span of six to seven years. The second thing that happened is that Ilan's mom, who wasn't allowed to go to school because she was a girl and the, the family wasn't uh, prioritizing girls' education. She came to me and she said, I was told that as a female, I couldn't raise daughters like this. And because of Starfish, I've been able to do that. I want to do for other people's daughters what the program has done for my daughter. And I think that's really, really important because when we think about development and, and sponsorships and things like that, we think about people taking instead of people giving back, that the people that are there are invested in helping their own communities. Staffish has a lot of volunteers coming in, but at the core of it are people on the ground from the culture, from the country working together to make this happen. And so Mama Kujabi, who never went to school, is now doing tie-dye and batik and soap making and embroidery and sewing and hairdressing and teaching the girls and, and baking and teaching the girls all these skills so they can start their own small business. And that entrepreneurship is a big part of your program as well and having empowering women to start their own businesses and get business experience. Can you talk a little about that? It's critical because again, it goes back to my mom, my mom's life providing that blueprint. So I told you that after the divorce, my mom lost custody of the kids, of us kids. And I watched her go from sleeping in people's living rooms to getting her own apartment, getting her own job, getting her own apartment, regaining custody of us and making a life for herself. And I knew that she had those choices because she was making her own money. And so when you think about a situation where a young girl in high school is told, well, we really invested in you. It's not that Gambian parents don't want to educate their daughters. It's that the average Gambian makes a dollar a day. So if you make $365 in the year and it takes about $100 to, to educate one child and you have four children, you have to pick one. One of the activities I like to do with high schoolers in the U.S. is I give them $365 and I tell them to budget it for the family and to make decisions. Quickly, they will say, I can't educate all these kids. I have to pick one. And then they have to justify which one to pick. And in the Gambian's case, they will pick the male child because they feel it's an investment that the female child will get married and go to another family. The male child will marry somebody and bring them to add to the human resources. So if an older man wants to marry a young girl and says, I will marry your daughter. I will also provide, because now I'm the new son-in-law, I'll provide food for this family that's struggling and medical care. If a parent says yes to that, it makes sense because they want everybody to live and to thrive. And if that means this girl is dropping out of high school because I can't pay for them and gets married and brings resources, then that's fine. Our argument is that if this girl is able to do her own small business and not only help herself, but help the family, help with groceries and so on, when it's time to make that decision, she gets a place at the table. 
and she gets to speak for herself and she can say, I've been taking care of myself and helping with my siblings and with groceries. If I can do this in high school, you can imagine how much more I can do in college. So continue to invest in me despite the sacrifice. And part of your program is the girls doing the junior youth spiritual empowerment books and workshops and uh, activities from those books. Yeah, so one of the things that makes me feel so lucky and so blessed to, to call the Baha'i Faith my spiritual home is the fact that it is so outward oriented. So if you look at the Baha'i houses of worship, they are built as the Baha'i's gift to the world. Any Muslim, any Christian, any Buddhist, anybody who doesn't believe in any religion can enter there and feel like it's their spiritual home. And it's the same way with the materials, the educational materials that Baha'is provide for the rest of the world. And so the Junior Youth Enrichment Program is that sort of program. When we talk about the qualities that human beings need, there's material development, which a lot of people focus on, but there's also adjunct to it, spiritual development that needs to happen. So when we as Gambians have discussions about how to develop the Gambia, we inevitably have to talk about corruption. And you so, so you think, I'm going to develop this individual, I'm going to give them the highest education. And I always say, I want to develop the next best scientist who will not develop the next atomic bomb. It's mm. important to me. Mm -hmm. And for that to happen, they have to understand their spiritual place in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that is critical for me. And for that then to happen, there are materials that Baha'is design and dedicate to the development of the world that these girls have access to and can learn and understand the oneness of humanity. What does kindness and what does love, what does unconditional love, what does selfless service look like on the ground and doing what you do and dedicating your skills um, and your talents to the world for God's sake or for a purpose higher than yourself. That's what these spiritual enrichment programs, materials do for the girls. And then they have to take that into the community and implement it. So it's not just ideas and discussions, but what does kindness and love look like on your way to school every day, for example. Oh, that's just, that's beautiful. And for people who want to learn more about Starfish uh, or want to donate money, you're certainly looking for funds, you're looking for volunteers, you're looking for materials. Uh, where do they go? So we have a website. It's www.starfishinternational.org. We also have a Facebook page that is maintained by the girls. It's called Starfish International. And the girls will actually update what is happening there. All the materials that's, that are generated by Starfish are actually generated by the girls telling their own stories. And I keep saying girls, 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 but there are boys in the program. I should say that we're a girls education program that has boys. And the idea is that, you know, this, there's a Baha'i idea, um, a beautiful Baha'i analogy that the equality of women and men, gender equity, is like two wings of a bird. So the bird is humanity, the bird is the nation, the body of the bird is the family um, and the community. And the two wings are male and female. And so the male wing right now in humanity is very strong. The female wing all around the world is not as strong. And so long as both um, don't function in a, in a way that balances this bird out. It cannot soar to the highest heights. And so um, when it comes to that, when you look at um, issues of equity, we bring the boys in and they benefit from every part of the program except we don't pay their school fees because we know that when it push comes to shove, the families will pay for the boys if they have to choose instead of the girls. And so we believe at least for the first generation, of this project, if girls are prioritized, then we're prioritizing the body of the bird itself, which is the family and the nation. Because these girls, as they're living their lives, as we're seeing them now, will invest in both boys and girls and in that development. And that partnership is critical so that we don't approach development in terms of whatever a boy can do, a girl can do even better. They don't have to do it better. They have to do it together if we're to survive as humanity. So we have boys in the program. But I focus on the girls because they have the greatest need right now. That's fantastic. And just to, to wrap things up, one of the questions I ask everyone who does this is, perhaps your favorite quote from the Baha'i Faith and also your biggest spiritual test that you're undergoing at this time. 
David, please go ahead. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> By all means, let me go first. Yes. <laughs> um, favorite quote. I like um, the quote, let your heart burn with loving kindness for all who cross your path. I love people. <laughs> I love everyone. But this quote saying, not only be kind to people, but, you know, let your heart burn with loving, not just kindness, but loving kindness. I mean, we're all one. Everyone's your cousin. And and I, I don't really see any separation in this world. I mean, really, amongst anything. But, you know, especially people. We're all one. So that, that's my favorite quote. Um, spiritual struggle. Well, my greatest fear is dying and realizing I could have done more. That's my biggest fear. So um, meeting Yasin was uh, an answer to my prayers. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm much less likely because Starfish is, you know, uh, 25 hours a day, eight days a week, 13 months a year, and it just like for eternity. David, you know that's not how time works, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Starfish, that's how it works. Um, so anyways, yeah. So um, so it's interesting. So I'm all, at every point in my life, I'm always thinking, at this moment, what can I be doing um, to maximize my impact in the world, um, given my genetics and my experiences, my education, where I am in life? And for, honestly, for me, I've always said that Yasin is like the most amazing person I've ever met in my life. And if I was told that my destiny is just to be the best husband I can possibly be for her, um, and the best you know father to my kids, and just to support her in her dream, I can't think of anything more effective, honestly, in this day and age than that, if I, if I really wanted to make an impact in the world, because the world is recognizing that girls' education is truly, you know, uh, the biggest secular thing you can do to transform the world. Um, and, and it might be that case for the next hundred years. And I think Yasin, I just, I feel like she is playing a critical role in this. Not only has, does she feel like she was created to do this and everything about her her life has been preparing to do this work, um, but even in her academic studies and her PhD, you know, she's focusing on this. And Starfish is really, um, we want to use it as a model for the rest of the developing world to say, look, you can do this. So right now, my biggest uh, spiritual struggle, um, I, I guess it's just, you know, the normal, just trying to, again, just to be the very best husband I can possibly be and the best dad I can be. And uh, to support Yasin and, and Starfish is in, in every way possible. So. Well, <laughs> so um, I always say I was created to do this work. I also say I don't have a choice when it comes to doing this work because God has provided me with everything, every excuse I could have for not doing the work he has removed. So my husband, you know, he's given me a psychologist for a husband, which I feel like I need <laughs> in this work with all the frustrations and all the unknowns. But he's given me somebody who feels like this is their choice. They're making a choice to support me. So I don't have to worry about resentment, even though I check in because that's the type of person I am. Every few months I'll say, David, do you still want to do this? I don't want you to be <laughs> resentful of this lifestyle you're living. But our kids, we homeschool our kids. This, this is our life. This is a life of service. And so I feel like God has provided me with the best kids and the best husband for me to do this work. So I have to do it. Um, so my, I'll start with my spiritual struggle. So my biggest spiritual struggle is finding balance, which I think is a lot of people's spiritual struggles, is that I'm completely dedicated to this work. I know this is my life's work. I have biological children, but I have 100 girls and about 30 boys every year who I feel are no different from my biological children. So to do this work with them every day and then to come home and have enough to give David and the kids as well. And not to be so immersed in the work that I forget. And this idea in the Baha'i faith that work done in a spirit of service is worship. So when I'm doing the work, I don't feel like, oh, this is work and this is my spiritual life. I feel like I'm worshiping God every moment. And so when is worship enough, you know? So I have to find that balance and say, okay, I'm worshiping a lot, but I need to worship in different ways and replenish and give back to my family and be a daughter, a sister, a mother, as well as a co-founder of an organization. So that I feel like will be a struggle for the rest of my life. So I'm always saying, pray for me. But my favorite Baha'i quotation is, 
the one that says, my calamity is my providence. Outwardly, it's fire and vengeance, but inwardly, it's light and mercy. And so for me, that has manifested in my life a lot of times. When I look at my struggles, and I feel like at this point in humanity's history, it is a time of struggle, of adolescence, of birth pangs, and, and a lot of trauma. To, to try to look at the trauma that we're going through as humanity and to see it as light and mercy, that there is literally a silver lining and that silver lining we are called on to not be so overwhelmed as not to see the gifts that we have so a practical example is when you look at the u.s and you look at all that is happening and all that frustrates you to look at it and say this is the most diverse nation in the world and this is a place where people are unafraid to dream and go after those dreams is something that you shouldn't miss. If you miss it, then you're despondent. But if you see that, even if you don't see where the US ends, you can see where it is and what gifts and what lessons it has to teach humanity. So to try to remember always that no matter what the struggle is when it comes to gender, race, class, whatever religion, that to try to remember that it is a gift and there it is. it might look like fire and vengeance, but it is light and mercy all around. Well, that couldn't be a better point to end on. This has truly been a, a privilege getting to know the two of you and speaking to you. I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for being a part of this podcast and sharing your story with the literally dozens of people that may hear this podcast. <laughs> thank you for having us. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's hundreds. Thank maybe you. a few, maybe a few thousand. I want to publicly invite you to Starfish yes. to come and visit and meet the girls yourselves and become um, even a more integral part of the Gambian family. Thank you. I will take you up on that. All Absolutely. Right. And in fact, I want to make it my mission to visit all the places in the world that begin with the word the. The, <laughs> the Bronx, the Netherlands, the Gambia. the Gambia. I can't think of any others right now. I'm sure there's many more. Yes, please come. Thank you for coming by. Thank Much you. love. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much. Good night.